This is Anthony's last Sunday with us. I know, I know, I know. And Anthony has stepped in at a time when we've been searching for a worship leader and has stepped in and served as our interim for the last several months. And would you guys please just tell him how much you appreciate what he's done? And we're grateful for you, man. Um, also, I just want to say thank you for supporting me last week, New York City Marathon. I, I was smiling because, you know, I saw I passed you guys like mile four. And for the next 22 miles, I just had a big smile on my face because it was so cool to just be, have that cheering section and just know that I'm uh, I hope I am interpreting this correctly. But I, just knowing that I'm loved by my church and uh, uh, unfortunately, I didn't win. Uh, I didn't win. So I wasn't able to get the prize money. So I'll try better next year. Matthew chapter 7, we'll continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount with a passage that you've probably heard before. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And if you were to get online right now and look at virtually any survey in the last 15 years of our culture's view of Christianity, uh, or if you were just to simply ask your neighbor what one word describes Christianity to you, Uh, The word, the most common word typically used to describe American Christians today is judgmental. And to be honest, uh, I do feel like that's not an entirely fair criticism, to be quite honest. I think judgmentalism plagues every group, whether it's secular, religious, political, racial. It's not just Christians that perpetuate stereotypes. And it's not just Christians who make uninformed assumptions or believe the worst about others. I believe judgmentalism, especially in our current cultural moment, is a temptation for all groups. Yet, at times, the shoe does fit. And Christians do have a tendency at times to be judgmental, especially toward those outside of our faith. And as followers of Jesus, we need to repent of the times that we have falsely, harshly, and unfairly judged others. And we need to listen to the instruction of Jesus when he tells us here in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged. I mean, you may have heard the old King James Version, judge not lest ye be judged. And now, of course, this is one of the most popular and well-known verses in our society. And it's popular today, especially because I believe that many people on the surface, it seems to fit with two of our culture's most basic assumptions. One is that religion should be private. And two is that morality and truth are relative. So people see Jesus saying, judge not lest you be judged. And they say, that means you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me I'm wrong. You can't make moral claims about another person's life. You can't make truth claims about what you believe. You're judging me. You can't judge me. Or they'll say, that's just your truth. Don't tell me what my truth is. But if this is what Jesus meant by judge not lest you be judged, then he routinely broke his own command. Jesus made both moral and truth claims 
all the time. He was always doing that. He claimed them. He spoke them over others. He says to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He named what she was doing sin. And he told her not to do it anymore. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That's a truth claim. He made that. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls out adultery, lust, anger, lying, hypocrisy as wrong. He makes a moral claim. And later in this chapter, in just a few paragraphs down, he's going to rebuke false teachers. And he's going to say there are people who teach things that are false. They're dangerous. You should avoid them. So to judge not, according to the Bible, is not to throw your hands, or at least according to Jesus, is not to throw your hands up and say to each his own. Everything's relative. You do you, I'll do me, and just let everybody be. That's not what Jesus means by judge not. If you were actually to do a word study of the New Testament word judge, you'll find that, the, that judgment in the New Testament, when it refers to uh, humans in human interaction with other people, it refers to contempt toward others or unfair criticism of others. And so in Romans 14, 10, the Apostle Paul says, you then, why do you judge your brother and sister, brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And so to judge, according to the New Testament, then is to unfairly and without all the facts and without a gracious disposition, criticize others. John Stott, one of the great theologians of our generation, of our lifetime, says the critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive toward other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. To sum up, the command in the Sermon on the Mount to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. See, we judge harshly when we assume that we know what someone's motives are. And we ascribe that to them. We judge harshly when we act as if we can see objectively into someone's heart. We judge harshly when we look at an action or a decision that someone has made or a vote they have cast or a parenting style they've adopted or how they spend their money and we ascribe the worst possible intentions to them. That's judging harshly. We judge harshly when we make assumptions about people based on their race. We judge harshly when we doubt someone's sincerity. Oh, you're just doing that. To, you're playing me, you know. Cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit, may I remind you. We judge harshly when we look past all that is good and beautiful and true in someone's life and we find the one or two faults that they have and point them out with glee. We're so happy to find faults and point them out and then we remark how we could do it better or how someone else could do it better. I'm a preacher, so I take a lot of pride. Or I put a lot of work into my sermons and people are like, have you ever heard of Tim Keller? You should try to preach like him. I'm like, yeah, I know who the guy is. I'm like, if I could preach like the dude, I would. You don't have to point it out to me. If you really like him so much, his church is on the Upper West Side. Go to Sam, find him. I'm doing the best I can. We judge harshly when we define people by their worst moments or their mistakes or their failures. When we, we never, we don't forget that one mistake that somebody made and we define them by the worst moment of their life. 
We judge harshly when we refuse to give the benefit of the doubt, and we judge harshly when we write others off too soon. They'll never change. They don't deserve my forgiveness. They'll just waste it. And I don't know about you, but some of those painful moments in my life are when I have been unfairly and harshly judged or criticized. And I know that's probably true of you. When others have reached a verdict about me in their own minds and pronounced it and applied it over my life without knowing all the facts or without doing so in a gracious way or without even talking to me about it first. And I carry deep, deep wounds from moments like that. But likewise, some of the most regrettable mistakes of my life have been when I have harshly or unfairly judged others. Some of the greatest shame that I carry with me as a husband, as a father, a pastor, a friend, an employee, even as a boss, have been when I have judged harshly and hurt others. And I carry shame with me to know that I have inflicted deep wounds on many people. You see, we need God's Spirit to heal us from the wounds that have been inflicted upon us. And we need God's Spirit to forgive us of the wounds we have inflicted upon others. So we judge not, lest we be judged. John Tyson, a pastor here in the city, says this. He says, the role of Satan, in the, li- the role of the enemy in the life of the Christian is to accuse us and define us by our worst faults and failures. The role of the Spirit, however, is to forgive us our faults and failures and define us by the work of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, our greatest desire ought to be to be like Christ and to walk in his spirit. Yet, when we judge people harshly, we are actually doing the work of the enemy in their life. When we judge people unfairly, when we cast a verdict over somebody's life without knowing all the facts and all the, all the answers, and when we, deci- we define somebody by their worst moments, we are actually doing the work of the enemy. We are being played by Satan when we do that. So how do we walk in the Spirit? How do we become people of grace and mercy? And how do we seek the way of Jesus in this area of our lives and walk by the Spirit? And so I want to give you four shifts, four movements that we must make in our lives in how we see and relate to others if we want to be people that are gracious in the way that we treat and evaluate other people. So the first shift we must make make in our lives if we want to be people of grace is that we must move from self-righteousness to repentance. Jesus says in verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the big two by four that's sticking out of yours? And Jesus is funny here. Like he's being, he's giving a comic visual. You know, he's this idea of somebody with this big log sticking out of their face and they're trying to like pull, get something out of somebody else's eye and they're banging them over the head and they're wobbling around. Jesus is being funny. He's giving us a word picture. But what he reveals is that one of the reasons that we find it so easy to pass judgment and criticize or assume the motives of others is that it's because we actually think we're better than others. That's why we often do it. That's why we start calling out the speck in everybody's eyes. We think we're better than them. We don't even notice what's in our eye. And Jesus says sometimes we can be so self-righteous judging others for the specks in their eyes that we don't notice the log sticking out of ours. My My friend and former pastor, J.D. Greer, says one of the ways that you know that you're judging others 
is that when you are more enraged by someone else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own. A great spiritual example of this analogy of a speck and a log is Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18. In that parable, a Pharisee, a great religious leader, goes to the temple, steps up to the altar, and with all this swagger and boisterousness, he says, Oh God, thank you that I'm not like that loser over there. And he points to the tax collector. And the Pharisee doesn't recognize his own sin. He doesn't recognize his own need for God's mercy and grace. He's so preoccupied about judging the tax collector that he begins to feel so self-righteous that he doesn't feel any need for God's mercy. And Jesus says, that's the man that walked away from the temple that day headed to hell. Not the tax collector. See, there's a temptation for all of us to look at others and point out their faults. And by doing so, we begin to feel puffed up. I'm a little bit better than them. By comparing ourselves, you can always find somebody worse than you. Or you can always convince yourself that somebody's worse than you and it makes you feel real big and smart and tall. But there's a temptation for us to become self-righteous when we do this. And that, this is where, it's at this point where many people have been hurt the most by churches and by Christianity or by Christians. Because there are Christians who feel that because of their good behavior or their moral standing or their right beliefs have earned the right to shame and condemn others for their behavior. And for this, the church of Jesus, we must repent. See, we think, there's often this mindset when we become, when we think we're moral and we think we're right and we think we have the truth and we think we, uh, we've got everything. There's a tendency for us to think we're the ones that have to set the world to rights. And we have to tell everybody uh, how they should be. But that's God's job. There will be a judgment day when all actions and all motives will be sifted. And it's not going to be you and I making the decisions on that. God is the judge. He is the only one who has the authority to condemn. We don't have the clarity to make that judgment. We can't see in people's hearts. We have a log sticking out of our eye. Only Jesus can see that clearly. And so before we cast stones or cast judgment on anyone, Jesus tells us, like he told the Pharisees that were th- wanted to kill the woman caught in adultery, he says, he who is without sin can cast the first stone. Before you start condemning others, you must first repent of your own sin. But now I know many of you, myself included, who've been burned by religious hypocrisy or have been burned by religious judgment or condemnation, we have a temptation When we've been hurt by self-righteous people, the temptation is that we become self-righteous ourselves. And we must strive to avoid this. I see this all the time. People get burned by the church and then they they go on a crusade to tell the world about how bad church people are. As if they don't have their own issues that they need to work out themselves either. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, says that one of the first great signs of Christian maturity and spiritual growth is that you become frustrated with the religious hypocrisy of the church and desire to separate from it and speak out against it. It's the first sign of Christian maturity. But the next sign of spiritual growth and maturity, he says, is to recognize that the same hypocrisy in the church is present in oneself and repent of it, beg God to forgive us and change our hearts. So here's what I think Jesus is teaching us. Get right with God. Before you start trying to get others right with God. Because no matter who you are or what you've accomplished. Or no matter what trauma you've experienced. 
You don't have to answer to God for someone else's heart and for someone else's motives or sins or flaws or faults or weaknesses. You will have to answer to God for your own. And we all fall short of the glory of God, says the scriptures. See, the gospel points us to repentance, not critique. And often it's because we have issues in our own hearts that we try to manage our own issues by pointing it out in other people. And Jesus says, all of your critiques of others must first be directed at your own heart. In that parable of the Pharisee, Jesus, the the hero of that story was the tax collector, who was like a great sinner. But Jesus says the one who walked away justified was him because when he walked to the temple, he knew he didn't deserve God's grace, but he begged for it. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We must move from self-righteousness to repentance, but we also must move from certainty to empathy. Jesus says, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think one of the reasons we find it so easy to judge other people is because we are so sure that we're right about everything, aren't we? We assume something is true of someone. We just automatically go, okay, well, they made this decision or they said this thing. This must be true about them. And we convince ourselves that we couldn't possibly be wrong. We don't ever entertain the thought that our assumptions about other people could be way off. And most of the time, our assumptions are way off. I knew a pastor a few years ago, uh, a family left the church that he was the pastor of, and they were slandering him all over town. I mean, they were just ripping this guy. And they were telling everybody they knew about how bad this guy was. And it was like, what was the issue? And they said, well, he bought a brand new Toyota like SUV or whatever. No pastor should ever drive a $55,000 vehicle. First Timothy chapter three says that pastors should not be lovers of money, they said. But I knew this pastor. You know what the truth was? That brand new SUV wasn't brand new. And it was given to him by a generous church member who at first offered to buy the pastor a brand new Mercedes Benz. And the pastor rejected the Benz and he said, no, that just wouldn't be a good look for a pastor to be driving around town in a Benz. And they said, well, can we buy you? What what kind of car would you like? What would serve your family? And he said, well, we need an SUV with three rows. And they said, all right. And they went and they bought a used Toyota and they gave it to him. See, these people were so sure they knew the pastor's intentions, but they actually had it completely wrong. That's a minor example, right? But in my own life, a few years ago, I remember being completely devastated by my own sin when I realized the folly of my own assumptions toward other people. But I remember this song. There was a song that came out when I was in high school by a band called City High. And it was called What Would You Do? Does anybody remember this song? The chorus said, what would you do if your son was at home? It said, said, what would you do if your son was at home crying all alone on the bedroom floor because he's hungry? And the only way to feed him is to sleep with a man for a little bit of money. And I remember being a teenager and just laughing at that song. I thought it was like some kind of joke. Like, seriously? Are you kidding me? The only way to feed your kids is to prostitute yourself. Come on. Get a job. I thought, stop having so many kids, I thought. 
And if I'm honest, I probably even, there were probably even some racial assumptions in my mind as I heard that song too. Those people. But a couple years ago, I was reminded of that song when I was with one of my friends, Pastor Edwin Cologne, who as a church we support, we partner with their church. He and I were in downtown Brooklyn around his church where he knows all the people around that area. And there was a prostitute, a homeless prostitute that would walk around his church. And he said hello to her and she came over and he said, how can we pray for you? And she told us that she had a son starving at home. And she had made mistakes in her past. She was trying to get clean from drugs, but no one would hire her because of her record. She couldn't get benefits because she didn't have an address. And so she was prostituting herself to pay for the food to give her son. And in her mind, she had no other option. And now, do I condone prostitution? Not at all. Are there better ways for this woman to care for her son? Of course. But when you hear her story, and when you hold her hand, and you feel it shaking as you pray for her, and you watch her tears create a puddle on the sidewalk on Atlantic Avenue, you stop giggling at the song. You stop being so dang certain about people's motives and their assumptions and their lives, and you begin to empathize with people. See, there's always a backstory, and you don't know it. You don't know what people in this room are walking in here with. When we make superficial judgments about how people look, about their sin habits that they haven't quite yet worked out, we're doing the work of the enemy. It's satanic. And we're not walking by the Spirit. You would never want someone to judge you without knowing you or without knowing all the facts. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Jesus says. Take the log out of your own eye first so that you can then look at the speck in other people's. We must be so careful to evaluate people based on what we think is true about them. We must move from certainty to empathy. But we must also move from envy to encouragement. See, the opposite of criticism is encouragement. I think one of the reasons we're so quick to criticize and judge others is because we're so insecure with ourselves. We wish we made more money. So we judge those who have more. I wonder what they did to earn all that. They must be so greedy. Uh, they're, probably, they're probably just not good with their money. They're probably in a lot of debt. Or, you know, she's probably not a good mom. She probably just works so much. She doesn't, she's probably just a terrible mom. That's why they have so much money. Or we feel so insecure about our own habits and our own vices. So we put down others. Man, that guy doesn't drink. Was he thinking better than me? Or we feel insecure about our own spiritual maturity, so we throw water on someone else's fire. Oh, she's too intense. She's a Bible study every week. Always talking about Jesus all the time. Relax. See, because we compare ourselves to others, we have a tendency to think that in order to feel valuable, we have to level everyone down to our size. So sometimes, even when we compliment people, we throw in like a backhanded insult on the other side of it, don't we? I call it the compliment sandwich. Oh, yeah, that Kyle Vi, I mean, he's a real smart guy. Kind of arrogant. <laughs> but, oh, but he's a good dude. But he's a good dude. But he's a good dude. He's not arrogant at all. But you know the compliment sandwich. Uh, John Tyson, again, says, We are so afraid that if someone else's light shines, we think ours will diminish. But life is not a zero-sum game. You can encourage others, 
and still be blessed yourself. Other people can receive blessing and so can you. So we judge, we criticize most often out of our own insecurity. And we've got to repent of that. See, part of repentance is changing our behavior. And so instead of judging and criticizing, we ought to see our role in people's lives, not as the person who has to point out all their weaknesses. Guess what? They already know them. I know my weaknesses. You don't have to tell me. (laughs) You know your weaknesses. You know you're screwed up. You don't need 15 people telling you about it. What you need is some godly people encouraging you and speaking the gospel of Jesus into your life and saying, you may think you're this, but by the grace of Jesus, you can become this. And I see this in you, and so does Jesus. So instead of judging and criticizing, we ought to see ourselves as encouragers. And honestly, I think sometimes we're so afraid to truly encourage someone because we're afraid they'll get a big head. But don't you see that in itself as a form of judgment? Withholding, speaking, blessing into someone's life because you assume they'll, quote, take it the wrong way. How dare we? Speak life into people. That's the way of Jesus. That's walking in the Spirit. In the kingdom of God, in the church of Jesus, we ought to be speaking life into people, no reservations. We can leave the conviction of sin to the Holy Spirit. And so exercise for you today is I want you to find someone today in the church, in your family. And when you see them, I want you to tell them the good that you see in them. You know, here are the ways, you know, hey, I'll pick on Kyle since I already picked on him. Kyle, here are the ways I see God working in your life. And just give him three or four ways that you just see God doing something special in his life. That's the way of Jesus. Jesus even says, the judgment that you pronounce over others, that is the measure it will be measured to you. So if you want to put yourself as judge and jury over everybody, there's going to be a day when you'll stand before God and he's going to treat you the same way that you treated others. And what is it that you want on that day? Another shift we must make is we must move from harsh judgment to gentle restoration. See, when we harshly judge or criticize someone, we are in many ways writing them off. We're saying, oh, we assume they'll never change, and we attempt to inflict pain upon them, thinking that's the only way they'll get better. It's on me to hurt them so that they can can get better. But Jesus calls us to restore people gently. See, the metaphor of the speck in the eye is a really beautiful one. Because I don't know if you've ever had anything in your eye. This is why I don't wear contacts, because I hate touching my eyeball. I just don't do it. Like my wife wears contacts. I don't understand how she does it. I'm going to wear glasses all day long because I'm not touching my eye and nobody else is either. It's weird. I don't even like the eye drops in my eye because our eye is very sensitive. And so if there's even a speck of something in your eyeball, that speck can do great damage. And so it has to be removed, but it has to be removed with great care and it must be removed with great tenderness and patience because the eye is very sensitive. And I don't know, I mean, I think of times I may have gotten something out of my little kid's eyes. You walk in the room, you got to turn the light on, you put the flashlight on their face, you get, you, you put your glass on, you make sure you can see clearly so that you can then gingerly and tenderly take it out of their eye. And in the life of the church, we will all, in, in life, look, we're going to see things in people's lives that are damaging to them. We're going to see sin patterns. In people's life, we're going to see habits and even beliefs that they have that that are damaging to their life. 
And it is not unloving or even judgmental to point those out to people. But before we ever point those things out, we must first repent of our own self-righteousness and we must empathize with them to know how the speck got there in the first place. There might be a good story behind it. And we must encourage them in the process. See, I've had people in my life who've pointed out my flaws, my sins, and my weaknesses in both unloving and loving ways. And when someone judges me harshly and when they call out my stuff and they're real mean about it and I know that they don't have a real concern for me, they're just trying to get a shot in, it entrenches me further, it wounds me, and it never helps. But thank God there have been many people in my life who have lovingly at times said, Will, there's this area that I see in your life. And you know, look, I'm not a saint either. I know I've got my own stuff. But, but I, I think you need to walk away from that. Or I think, I think you really need to pray about this. Or I, let me help you. I'm, I'm not perfect. I know I'm not. But let me help you. And I'm willing to help you. See, that's still painful. Nobody likes to have your sin pointed out, right? It's still painful. But it's the kind of pain that leads to healing. And, when, and it's done in a gener, generous and gracious way. And there's a lot of wisdom that the scriptures offer and there's great wisdom from other teachers out there. But here's what I've learned in my short life when it comes to calling out the sins of others. If you see sin in someone's life and you're trying to discern whether or not you should point it out to them. Here's a general rule that I have. If you haven't wept for them and you haven't wept for that sin in their life, if you aren't truly heartbroken over it yourself, you're probably not ready to speak to them yet. Because you're coming to them with hypocrisy and judgment and arrogance and not love, compassion, and grace. See, this was the pattern of Jesus. Jesus is not afraid to call out our sin. This cultural vision of Jesus where he's just some hippie that just blesses everything we want to do, that's so foreign to the Bible. Jesus Jesus was tough, but he was tough and tender. And he would call out sin when, when when you deserved it. But he would do so. He does, when Jesus calls out our sin, but he does so in a way that draws us to him, not repels us from him. He calls out our sin, but it, but it breaks his heart to see us pursuing those things, so he tries to restore us. And in the gospel, Jesus is able to tell us the harsh truth about ourselves that we are sinners and that we're separated from him, while at the same time drawing us closer to him. Even while he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Listen, the only one who knows your motives, the only one who truly knows your heart, the only one who actually sees the darkest parts of your soul, those parts that even your worst enemies can never even imagine, he sees those. He knows your motives. And yet he draws you close. And he'll call it out. And he wants to restore you and he wants to heal you, but he will call it out, but he will draw you close in the process. Jesus is not afraid to tell us that our sin is killing us, but he's also willing to be killed so that we could be free from it.